all together. It's in Matthew 5. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, good morning. I better check that uh, I'm on. Perfect. Well, it's been great to be uh, sharing with you this morning. If you're new visiting, my name's Noah. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Coral Baptist. Um, and especially warm welcome if you're visiting us for the first time. We've been looking at the uh, life of Jesus according to the Gospel of Matthew. Um, last week, Pastor David shared with us around the miracles, the amazing things that Jesus did. And this week, we're looking at the teachings of Jesus. Uh, I've got a photo up here. It's a, a little unclear, but uh, I was in Israel earlier this year, and this is the mount where Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. So uh, that little sort of hill there doesn't look anything particularly special, but that was where it was. And, you know, I think a lot of people, um, especially people in, in, uh, in Australia, even people in Korowa, will say, you know what, I'm not so keen on the, the dogma the uh, whole like super strict beliefs of Christianity and I'm not even sure about the whole weird miracles thing and Jesus rising from the dead like come on like I'm I'm a modern person but I love the teachings of Jesus like he's just such a wonderful teacher he just says to love people like the Sermon on the Mount we don't have to believe all this dogma we just need to live according to the Sermon on the Mount right and um, I think a lot of people think like maybe maybe you've heard that belief maybe you think that and that's cool. Thanks for coming today. I hope that I can show you something a little different. Um, but I want to share three points with you today about the Sermon on the Mount, which is the glory of the Sermon on the Mount, the terror of the Sermon on the Mount, and the hero of the Sermon on the Mount. The glory, the terror, and the hero. Come with me. First of all, the glory of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, there is so much stuff that Jesus says, so many amazing s- words, and, and you could unpack every line, every section, and get so much out of it. But I think when we do that, sometimes we can miss the forest for the trees. And so I'm going to be a bit ambitious and try and, in 10 points, sum up the whole of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, so come with me. I think Jesus here, I've got my next slide. Oh, it's a bit hard to read, but I'll go through it. I think Jesus is saying a pattern of how he's calling his followers to live. And he starts off saying, uh, I want to redefine your relationship with the world and your relationship with others. He starts off saying, you're called to be the salt of the earth, which in the ancient world, salt was a preserving agent. It stopped food from going bad. And so he's saying, you are called to, when, when people's lives fall apart, when communities fall apart, you are called to go in. When everyone else sees it falling apart and goes the other way, you're called to go in and pour yourself out. He talks about 
our relationship to others. He said, you've heard it said, don't kill people. But I say, don't even have contempt for people. He's, he, I think at the heart of that, he's saying every single person, regardless of race, of gender, of class, in fact, even regardless of moral performance, you must treat as an exact equal because they are infinite, uh, infinitely precious to God. He goes on and says, you're called to have sexual integrity. Don't, give, uh, don't, don't even think about other people lustfully. You're called to have integrity of speech. He says, Yet, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Every single word, even the smallest little words, they have to have so much truth to them that it's as if you're swearing on a whole stack of Bibles. He redefines how we respond to hostility. He says, turn the other cheek. I was in the Middle East recently, and, and people just kiss each other all the time. It's so weird. So, like, just blokes do, women do, everyone, because the cheek is the place of friendship. And so if, if you kiss someone, you're kind of saying, I'm, I'm your friend. And so Jesus is saying, when someone wrongs you, respond with such love that you're restoring the friendship, that you're still offering the friendship. Turn the other cheek. Jesus says, our response to the poor, he assumes, he says, um, where's our verse? He says, when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Now, that's assuming, first of all, that we Christians are going to be deeply involved in the lives of the poor. But more than that, what's the, the left hand and right hand thing? I think it's saying, well, most people, when they give to the poor, many people do it in a condescending, a, a self-congratulating, patronizing, paternalistic way. And Jesus is saying, I don't want that attitude in you. When you care for the poor, do it as if you're treating the poor as equals. Number seven, prayer life, our, our attitude to prayer. Now, up to this point, Jesus has been talking about um, uh, outward actions, what we do outwardly, and that's, that's super high standards, but now he turns to our heart, my oh my. Jesus says, don't just pray to be seen, don't just pray in church, don't just do it when everyone else is praying, but when you pray, go into your room and close the door. I think he's saying here, the real test of what's going on in your heart, the acid test to your heart, is what you do when your thoughts are your own. When, when you don't have to think about anything else, what is it that your mind naturally wanders to? Is it, does it wander to God or does it wander to something else? Because whatever it is that your thoughts naturally wander to, that's your real God. That's where you're looking to find your value in. It goes on saying, our attitude to money um, he says, don't, don't store up treasures in heaven, but, uh, in, on earth, but store up your treasure in heaven. And um, where is it that you spend money effortlessly? That, that you just, we all have one or two places, one or two ways, which we just find it effortless to spend money. We have to hold ourselves back because it's just, we, we just find it effortless to spend money. Um, wherever that is, that's where we're looking to find our value in. And that's where our real God is. See, we can say, oh, I'm a Christian. I'm this or I'm that. But this is the real acid test of our heart. What we do with our free time, where our thoughts naturally go, where we find it natural to spend our money. It, are, are we finding it easy to just naturally think about God? Or are we finding it easy to give to God's mission? Jesus is showing up our heart. Number nine, our attitude towards circumstances, to worry. Jesus says, don't be anxious. 
don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear. Tim Keller says that excessive and painful worry is always a form of pride. Excessive and painful worry always means I know how my life is supposed to be and God's not going to get it right. So worry is a sign of where our real God is. We're saying, I know and I'm going to hold on to control. And number 10, our attitude towards people who are wrong. People who have the wrong beliefs, wrong political views, wrong practices. They're just wrong, wrong. Judge not, Jesus said. Now, this can't mean don't criticize because the Bible is constantly looking at our heart and and showing up our true motives. It's saying to judge is to give criticism without humility, doing it without winsomeness or without love. So I think there's the, the 10 points if we were to sum up the Sermon on the Mount. It's pretty incredible, isn't it? This is a life of joyful divestiture. We're constantly called to be shedding our comfort, shedding power, shedding wealth, shedding our control. We're called to have integrity in our relationships, in our speech. We're called to love people so genuinely that we never treat anyone with disdain or indifference. A life where our love for God is so great that we never worry or are stingy. This is, this is life at the highest. This is nosebleed life. Life that just thinking about it is so high. This is why Jesus says, you are the light of the world. He's saying, if you live like this, you're going to stand out because no one else does. No one else lives like this. If, if we live like this. Because we're really not, are we? Which brings us to our second point, which is... um, the terror of the Sermon on the Mount. We don't really understand this text and still we feel the weight of it, the terror of the Sermon on the Mount. Virginia Stem Owens is a, uh, a lecturer at a university. Um, she's also a Christian and she writes books and, and she was teaching literature at uh, a, a major university and she decided to give the Sermon on the Mount as her text to her students. She realized none of them had read it before, almost, almost none of them had heard of it before. And so she got them to go read it and write an essay on it. And so she gave the assignment. The essay started to come in. At first she was surprised. Then she realized she shouldn't be surprised because they hated it. They hated the Sermon on the Mount. Here's uh, two excerpts from essays on, on this text. They said, I do not like the Sermon on the Mount. It made me feel like I had to be perfect and no one is. Another student wrote, The things asked in this sermon are absurd. To look at at a woman like that is adultery. To hate someone is murder. This is the most extreme, stupid, inhuman statements I have ever heard. And, And Virginia Owens concluded, Finally, biblical illiteracy had got to the point where people were finally able to respond to Jesus without filtering him through 2,000 years of cultural haze. In other words, these honest, ignorant ears were able to hear the Sermon on the Mount as it really was, and they hated it. They were terrified of it. They were disgusted by it. I said in the beginning that some people say, I love the teachings of Jesus. But anyone who says that has never really read it because if you read it, you're not going to say that. You're going to say, God, save me from the Sermon on the Mount. Take it away. It, 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 it exposes me. It condemns me. It, 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 it reveals me. Take it away. 
And here's why we respond like that. When we read it, we realize this is exactly how we've been asking everyone around us to live. We realize all our life you have been demanding that everyone else lives like this. And you know this is how you should be living. And yet, the Sermon on the Mount, it's so clear. It's so detailed. It spells things out so much that no one can escape it. In other words, you fall infinitely short of it. It exposes us. It shows us that we can't live up to this standard And so people say, this is ridiculous, this is unfair, take it away. So we're left with this tension, aren't we? On one hand, we see this is life at the highest. This is is so, like, this is how life should be. On the other hand, we realize the terror of it. What do we do with this tension? Well, only by seeing the hero of the Sermon on the Mount. Come with me. I think uh, very often... People just see this part of the text as life application. Here's some good things to do. But the the sermon actually starts with the Beatitudes, which Grant read out before. And uh, the Beatitudes say that before we can live like the Sermon on the Mount, we have to be changed. We have to receive something. Uh, Are we able to go back to the the text for the Beatitudes? And it starts with, um, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Um, now, oh, we got there. Awesome. Matthew chapter 5. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Only Christians or people becoming Christians are poor in spirit because no one else is. What do I mean by this? Jesus isn't talking about physical poverty. The Bible has plenty to say on that. But he's talking about a spiritual condition. He's saying, um, he's using this to, to talk about spiritual bankruptcy. What do I mean? Well, everyone else in the world besides Christians, if they were to suddenly appear before God, would say, um, you know, I've done some good things. Uh, I've, been, I've been kind to some people. I've, I've obeyed my parents. I've done some bad things too, but I've done some good things. The Sermon on the Mount uses financial language, saying poor in spirit. So in financial terms, it's saying, I've got some money in the bank. Like, I'm not bankrupt. I've, I've got some debts. I've done some bad things. I've got some debts, but I'm, I'm not bankrupt. Only Christians realize we have nothing in the bank spiritually. Only Christians have come to the revelation of saying, I have nothing in my life that is deserving of God's blessing. It's not just saying I'm a sinner because we've all done wrong things. It's saying even the good things I've done have for the wrong reasons. Even the good things I've done to try and earn my own self-justification, to try and be good enough, to try and keep control and be my own God. I have nothing in my life that's deserving of God's blessing. And, and then the next part is, blessed are those who mourn. I think this is also a spiritual illustration. He's saying, I realize I have nothing and I'm crying out to God. I'm repenting. God, you need to help me. Next it says, blessed are the meek. Now, the definition of meek is someone who has no power, uh, who's completely dependent. And so to be a Christian is to saying, if God is going to save me, I need all his power. I can't do it myself. I rely completely on his mercy, completely on his grace, completely on his salvation. I can't do it. It goes on. Next slide. Um, It says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, I think the word righteousness 
in our culture is a bit of a non-starter. No one uses that word. Um, But the Sermon on the Mount, which I just went through, that's showing up what righteousness really is. To live a righteous life is this high standard of the Sermon on the Mount. And most people go, this is too hard. Take it away. It condemns me. It shows me up. It reveals me. Only a Christian will say, though it convicts me, though I realize I'm not living up to the Sermon on the Mount, you want it. You want it. You hunger and thirst for it. It's, it's realizing all my life I've been playing in mud puddles and now I see the ocean. I see the glory of it and, and I want it and I can't get it. Only Christians or people who are becoming Christians realize we do not need self-improvement. We do not need God to just come and, you know, sort of help my life. No, we need a holy and absolute perfect righteousness and we can't get it ourselves. So what do we do? Well, I think the key here is the word blessed. Each line starts with the word blessed and and Hebrew and Old Testament scholars tell us that, that this word in the Old Testament was used, uh, it it literally meant to be favoured and envied, to be favoured and envied. It was used to describe kings or warriors, someone who had gone and done something amazing, had come back, and everyone was just amazed at them. They favoured them. They envied them. This Beatitudes is describing a king, and yet, while, while it should be the profile of a hero, It's a strange kind of hero. This is a hero who is poor in spirit, who is mourning, who is meek, until you realize it is describing a hero. Before the Beatitudes can ever describe you and me, they describe him, Jesus Christ. You see, why can we be rich in, in spirit? Why can we have every spiritual blessing in Christ? Because he became poor, because he emptied himself at the cross. Why can you and I be comforted? Because he wasn't comforted. He cried out. He he wept inconsolably. He died in the dark. Why are you and I inheriting the earth? Because he became meek. He was stripped of everything. Like a lamb silent before its shearers. Why can you and I be filled? Only because he hung on the cross, emptied himself and cried out, I thirst. Do you see it? Only, we will never be able to live up to the Sermon on the Mount until you see that Jesus is the hero of the Sermon on the Mount. If you're not a Christian, you'll see the amazing things that Jesus calls us to and you'll say, God, save me from it. Save me from the terror of it. I can never live up to me. It judges me. I can't be that high. But if you're a Christian, you'll say, God, save me through the one in whom the Sermon of the Mount points. Jesus Christ who became poor, who mourned, who who was meek, who became powerless, who was empty so that we could be filled. Do you see him? Look at Jesus and look at everything he did for you, how he went to the deepest depths for you. And when we see that, our hearts are changed. We realize we receive something. I cannot save myself if I'm going to get anywhere with God. It needs to be completely gift. I need a handout because I cannot do it myself. And Paul, Paul gets this. He says this in uh, Philippians 3. He says, I, I want to be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own. Not depending on my own moral performance. No, but a righteousness that comes from God through Jesus Christ. Here it is. 
If we want to be in right relationship with God, we don't try harder. We look to Christ, and, and through His Spirit, He enables us to do what we could never do. So my prayer for you as we finish up is this. I don't know where you're coming from this morning, whether this whole church thing is new to you or if uh, you've been around here for all your life, but may you see the glory of the Sermon on the Mount, the amazing standard to which it calls us, and yet the terror of it. I could never live up to this. But may you see the hero of heroes, the one to whom the Sermon on the Mount points, who emptied himself so that we can be filled who, who is hungry so that we can, can be filled with the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you of everything you did for us. Thank you, Lord, that you gave it all for us. That it wasn't just a simple case of us needing a little bit of help on the side, as some self-help, some, some uh, tax on to, to our own performance. No, we cannot live up to your standards and yet... You did it all for us. Thank you that you are the hero of heroes. And that when we trust in you, by your spirit, you enable us to do what we could never do. Lord, we can't do it without you. And we invite you right now to live in us. Lord, to fill us with your righteousness. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.